Do you fear death? The world around us fears death. The world around us is terrified of death. So terrified of death that uh, society is now in a successive waves being constantly upended in an attempt to stave off death by any means possible. The latest thing is uh, equine encephalitis. And in connection with this, they have had, I think, 22 horses that have been diagnosed as having the disease and one person in the entire state, to which their response was to declare an emergency and say that we have to spray a bunch of the state with the mosquitoes. Turns out they did a lot less than that. Because people are afraid of dying, even if the odds are astronomically low that you will do so. COVID-19 is a real virus. People have certainly died from it. But again, there has been this push to prey on people's fear of death to achieve certain goals. Any number of other things you might consider are designed to target people's fear of death. Vote for this candidate so that you don't die and people take all your stuff. Do this thing so that your life will be extended. And we might think that this only applies to unbelievers. But I would argue that we fear death more than we're willing to admit as well. We'll talk more about that as we consider here. What is it that we fear about death? As a child, you fear the unknown. You hear people talk about a concept that seems strange that you can't really understand. As an adult, you are perhaps more worried about the death of those that you love, keeping your children safe, dealing with the reality that someday your parents will die, or the fact that you will die and people that you leave behind will have to go through the same sort of grief that you've experienced when someone you love has died. As we grow older, we become more aware of the reality of death approaching. Apart from Jesus, we are paralyzed by fear of death. But Hebrews 2 tells us this. Fear Jesus, not death. Turn with me, if you're not already there, to Hebrews chapter 2. The first reason is that Jesus is the king. This whole discussion in verses 5 and following about things being subjected to Jesus and, and that it's not the angels. So this is how it connects to last week's passage. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 have the same basic idea that Jesus is better than the angels or different from the angels. And last week it was Jesus is better than the angels because He's God's Son, because He's the eternal ruler, because He is the one that God has appointed over all things. This week, it is Jesus is better or different than the angels because He is the one that God has set up as the ruler, and He is the one who helps God's people, not angels. We'll talk about the reasons for that in a moment. But the first thing here, why we should fear Jesus and not death, is because He is the King. We see that 
he was humbled for a little while. We see this quote from Psalm 8. The what is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him. And when we see this passage, we look at it and we say, all right, Psalm 8, is it talking about Jesus? Is it talking about David or humanity in general? Or is it talking about both? And the response to that is, David wrote it about humanity. The author of Hebrews applies it to Jesus. And we see all of the connection points because God said both things, right? So is it true that we could say with humanity in general, what is man that you consider him? Yes. Think about where we are in the vast universe. A microscopic speck in a universe that's so big, some people have said it's infinite. I don't think that it is, because only God is infinite, but people have said that because they can't see the edges of it, right? Why should God care about you? But think about Jesus. The Son of Man. He called himself that a lot in the Gospels, right? And so, true of all of humanity, but especially true of Jesus. You have made him lower than the angels. Some versions say for a little while. Some have said a little lower. The second part, certainly true of Jesus, right? That for a little while he was lower than the angels from the perspective of taking humanity upon himself. But God has made us lower than the angels. We don't like to necessarily admit that. There have been people who've said when it comes to things like casting out demons or all that sort of thing, that we can just sort of strut about and ignore the fact that they have more power and more knowledge and are greater than us in some respects. But the reality is we are lower than the angels in terms of our weakness and our finiteness and all those sorts of things. And Jesus shared in that experience while he came and dwelt as a man upon the earth. And yet, there is this idea of being crowned with glory and honor and being appointed over the works of God's hands and all things being in subjection under His feet. Think back to Genesis 1, 28 and 29. What did God say to Adam and Eve? He said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over all of it. But who especially has dominion over the earth? Jesus. And so all these things that are true of humanity are applied to Jesus. He's humbled for a time, and then he is exalted. Now we recognize in verse 8 it says, nothing is not, that He left nothing that is not subject to him, or everything is subject to him, and yet he acknowledges we do not yet see all things subjected to him. This was the reality that, as we were talking about in the Sunday school hour, that the Israelites of Jesus' day struggled with, right? Because... They expected when Jesus came, he was going to rule, and when he ruled, it was all going to happen right then, and everything would be under his power, and the Romans would be gone, and all the people that had persecuted them would be gone, and everything would be set right then and there. If you look at the world around you, I think you have to admit things are not set right. Things are not the way that they should be. There is not justice in the world no matter how many people march in the streets and how much we cry out about it in our posts online or how much we argue about it with our friends there is not justice the world is not good but there's a day coming when jesus is going to rule and reign and how can we be certain of that 
because, verse 9 says, Jesus was for a little while lower than the angels, but because of the suffering of death was crowned with glory and honor. Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor. He's been exalted after his suffering. We can be certain that he's going to fulfill the rest of his promises and come to rule and reign. And we look forward to that day. Why does he suffer, though? By the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus had to become a man so that he could die because God cannot experience death in the way that humanity does. And so Jesus had to take upon himself a human nature so that he could experience death on behalf of those that he's going to save. Now, it does say here, everyone. And without going into an extended discussion of that, I would just point out this to you. Not everyone is going to believe in Jesus. And so I think we would all agree that this is limited in some way. And the way that this is limited is that he tastes death for, verse 10, the ones that he's going to bring many sons to glory. And so what God is accomplishing here is not Jesus tastes death for everyone so everyone gets to go to heaven. Why is that important? Because there's a lot of people who say, yeah, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to follow God. And so rather than making this a theological argument, I just want to make it a, a, a practical argument, which is this. You can't say, I'm going to heaven because Jesus tasted death for everyone, and so I'm just sort of automatically in. That's the point that I'm trying to make. You're not in because you're a good person. You're not in because you went to church. You're not in because you're a good patriot. You're not in because you're nice to people. You're not in because of fill in the blank. You are in Jesus if you actually trust in him. We'll talk more about that in a moment. So Jesus was humbled and then exalted. He's exalted because he suffered death. He suffered death on behalf of his people. And verse 10 surprisingly says that he was perfected through this suffering. What does it mean to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings? Wasn't Jesus already perfect? Didn't he never sin? Why does he then need to be perfected? The answer is, Jesus was I guess if we could put it this way, theoretically perfect, but until he was tested through suffering, he was not experientially perfect, and it had not been proven in the sight of all. So the perfecting the author of salvation through sufferings was not saying Jesus could have sinned, but he didn't, and so now he's good in the same way that we've all sinned, right? So we would need to be perfected. That sin would need to be dealt with. Jesus didn't have any sin to take away. But just as God tested the Israelites in the wilderness, just as Jesus was tempted and didn't sin in Matthew 4, here we see Jesus is perfected through suffering. He never once failed. And so where Adam failed, where David failed, where everybody who ever came before him failed, Jesus succeeded. He was perfected through suffering. He learned obedience, according to Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. What's the result of that? He makes holy those for whom he suffered. Verse 11, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. So, the purpose of his suffering not only accomplished his exaltation, 
but made it possible for him to make holy those who needed to be made holy, we who are sinners. That then leads them in praise and trust of God. So we see this in verses 12 and 13. Uh, Turn back with me, if you would, to Psalm 22. I just want to highlight for you the significance of Psalm 22 in connection with this idea of praise and trust in God. So Psalm 22, verse 22 says this, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. We're like, okay, that's a verse that we can get behind. We ought to praise God. But look at the context of it. Psalm 22 and verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Psalm 22 verse 6. I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. Psalm 22 verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. Verse 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, my tongue cleaves to my jaws. For you lay me in the dust of death. Psalm 22, verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. David is describing his own experience with the opposition of his enemies, but he is also, through God's infinite knowledge, anticipating what is going to happen in the experience of Jesus Christ. And out of that experience of suffering, following God's deliverance, what is the response Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Jesus' suffering is supposed to lead to God's glory. As his people trust God through him and alongside him. And so when it says, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. It's not a... It's not disconnected from the suffering. It's because of the suffering, because of Jesus' death, because of what he's done, and because of our connection with him. This idea of him being not ashamed to call them brethren, how does that fit together? God is the father of Jesus, his only begotten son. God is the father of all who call on him through Jesus. The verse says, Jesus... And those who call on God through Jesus have the same Father, so Jesus can call his people brothers. Which then leads us to what it says in verse 13. I will put my trust in him, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. And so, like Paul, the author of Hebrews is going back and forth between these metaphors and these illustrations. Brothers, there's that connection because the same Father... But there is a sense in which we who have believed in Jesus are the children that God has given to Jesus. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 8. You're familiar with Isaiah. He was a prophet. He prophesies against Judah and Jerusalem. He prophesies judgment against God's people. 
He prophesies even though they will not listen. Why do I say they will not listen? Because in chapter 6 it said, Go and tell this people, keep on listening but do not perceive, keep on looking but do not understand, render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. How long? Until cities are devastated, but there will be a remnant that remains. So then we come to chapter 8. Chapter 8 starts out and says, Write on a tablet, swift is the the booty, the spoils, speedy is the prey. And I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony. And he names his son this. The spoils of war, basically, is the name of his son. And Samaria is cast down in judgment, the northern kingdom of Israel. So this was supposed to be an object lesson for the people of Judah. It's written on a tablet in the sight of two witnesses, so it's been confirmed that it's true. It's the name of his son. Before his son is old enough, probably before he's two years old, the northern kingdom of Israel falls. And he prophesies judgment against them. And then he says, in verses 17 and 18, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in the Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Why is the author of Hebrews quoting these verses in connection with Jesus and his ministry? Judgment, trust in God, signs and symbols of God's work. There are amazing parallels between what was God was doing through Isaiah and what God did through Jesus and what God is doing through us today. You and I don't have the name spoils of war so that every time someone calls our name we think God's judgment is coming. But you and I are, if we have trusted in Jesus, signs and symbols of the reality that we're with Jesus and God's judgment is coming and people need to repent and trust in Him. So Jesus has gone through this suffering, died, made it possible for the people that God has given Him to be gathered with Him, and now they become a sign and a testimony of God's power with Him. Just like Isaiah and his children were. But people don't fear God's judgment. People fear death. But why do you and I not have to fear death? Because Jesus is the king. If Jesus is the king, and Jesus has power over death, and Jesus... Power is confirmed because he's been exalted and crowned in honor, then you and I don't need to fear death. But we do need to point out people to the reality of what they should fear. And what is it that they should fear? In Isaiah's day, they feared many things, and they said, Consult the mediums and the spiritists. They said, We want to be delivered from our difficulties, so we're going to come up with our own schemes. What was it that Isaiah was supposed to say? Should not a people consult their God? 
to the law and the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out when they are hungry. They will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. If you fear death and you refuse to acknowledge God and you refuse to trust in God, your end is darkness and destruction. There is no hope apart from God. And so for the people who are desperately clinging to life and afraid of anything that might threaten that life, they don't need to look to political rulers to solve this problem. They don't need to look to security systems to protect themselves and what they have. They don't need to look to insurance policies and airbags and eating the right food so that they don't ever get sick and all of these other sorts of things that people pour their lives into because they think that they will spare them from death. And the words of Isaiah say, and the message of Hebrews says, Apart from Jesus, you can't outrun death. But with Jesus, he's the king. Fear him. Isaiah 8.13 says this, It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. Fear Jesus. Not death. He's the king. If you refuse to fear Jesus, then you ought to fear death because to both the houses of Israel a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Jesus said it this way, I am a rock of refuge for my people, but I am a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to those who have rejected me and who I am. Jesus is the king. We're all going to acknowledge it some way. In willing service as his people on his side with the hope of victory and the confidence that even death itself will not defeat us. Or we will acknowledge Jesus in subjection as those on whom God's judgment falls. Unwillingly, but bowing all the same. So fear Jesus, not death, because He is the King. Trust in God. God is the one whom we should trust. God is the one whom we should fear. Not all of these things that occupy our minds. Why should we fear Jesus, not death? Because Jesus is the King. And secondly, because Jesus helps His people. Jesus helps His people, not angels. Verse 16, He gives help to this descendant of Abraham. Why is this? Because God's made promises to the descendants of Abraham, not to angels. He's going to keep those promises. So he's going to help his people. What does this look like? Verse 14. He shared in humanity. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he partook of the same. This is their experience. This is his experience. This is all leading to his being able to help his people. To what end? Why does he share in flesh and blood? So that he could die and break the devil's power.
Jesus became a man so that he could die. Dying, he breaks the power of Satan. What else does that result in? Verse 15, might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. We run from this fear of death. We drown it out or we desperately try to with constant noise. We have our TVs running and whatever you play your music on playing and from sunup to sundown we stay busy as much as possible so we don't have to face the realities of eternity that death is coming and we can't run away from it. And we're enslaved to it. Why? Well, we have to think about what leads to death. It's sin. Romans 6, for example, says, you were slaves to sin, now you're slaves to righteousness. So we have this fear of death because we're enslaved to sin and we see no way out. Jesus came to free people from this fear of death. Jesus did not come to free people from corrupt political systems the way that liberation theology would teach. That's a misuse of Scripture. Jesus came to free people from something far more important than the fact that you have a bad government, which is that you're enslaved to sin and condemned to death and you cannot escape that reality. He rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, so that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. This slavery resulted from sin. How does he deal with sin? Look at verse 17. He had to be made like his brethren in all things, so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Why did Jesus need to become a man to be the perfect high priest? Think about 1 Timothy 2.5. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the perfect high priest because he is both God and man, representing God, representing man, perfectly going between both groups, both parties in this relationship. But how does that deal with sin? He makes propitiation for the sins of the people. Hebrews is going to expand on this as we go through the book. But in the Old Testament, how did they make propitiation for the sins of the people? How did they deal with the people's sin before God? The high priest would go into the tabernacle. He would offer sacrifices. He would sprinkle the blood over the altar and symbolically over the people and deal with their sin for a brief time. He'd have to go and do it again the next year. They'd have to do it all throughout the year, dealing with the sins of the people, making propitiation for the sins of the people. As we'll see later in the book of Hebrews, Jesus makes propitiation, pays for the sin, secures forgiveness for God's people by himself becoming the sacrifice and the priest, willingly giving himself. And as 1 Peter says, we are then sprinkled with his blood and made holy in God's sight. So how does Jesus deal with our fear of death? How does he help us by dealing with our sin? How does he further help us with it? Verse 18, since he was tempted, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. How was he tempted? The greatest temptation of Jesus is probably not what you see in Matthew 4. That's the one we think about the most. It's when Jesus is about to be arrested and crucified and all of the things associated with that 
And humanly speaking, there's a choice. Am I going to do it or am I going to not do it? What did Jesus do? He did it. In the things which he suffered, he was tempted to the point of agony. He sweat great drops of blood. He was so overwhelmed with the reality of what he was about to face that he pleaded with God, if it be possible, take this away from me. And we think that we can't say no to sin. Jesus was tempted far more than you and I will ever be. And he said no to sin. He said yes to obedience to God. He was perfected through suffering. We saw that earlier in the passage. How many of you have ever tried to pick up something really heavy? Okay. I probably should get back to it, but there was a period of time when I was doing a little bit of weightlifting. And I got to a point where I could pick up things that were relatively heavy. But there's women in powerlifting competitions that could pick up four times as much as I picked up, so it wasn't anything to brag about. But here's the connection. If I pick it up and I drop it on the floor, and I'm like, I can pick that up. Okay. I hold it for a minute, an hour, a day, a year. You and, I, you and I pick it up and then we put it down because we can't hold it anymore. Jesus never dropped the weight. He never gave in to the temptation. He never disobeyed God. So who do you think is more qualified to help us than him? Nobody. He can help us because he's been there and he's been further than we have and he never stops. So some people are like, well, Jesus can't help you with your temptation because he never sinned, so he doesn't know what it's like. He absolutely knows what it's like and he knows it far better than you do because he never said yes to it. Jesus helps his people. Made like them, dying, breaking the power of Satan so that we don't have to be free, uh, enslaved to sin. We don't have to be fearing death. Dealing with our sin as the high priest, interceding on our behalf, all those things that we continue to see through the book of Hebrews, helping us when we face temptation. So bringing all these ideas together, Why do those around us fear death so much? Because for them, Jesus is not the king, and for them, Jesus is not their helper. So what's our excuse then? I think, I don't think any of us in here would, would argue with what we've been talking about. We all believe these things are true. But here's a test, something that we'll look at again when we work through the book that we're going to work through on, on Wednesday nights. What do you pray for? What do you ask God to help you with? 
most of the time it's things that line up a lot more with a fear of death than it is things that line up with a concern for what is most important to God and a confidence in what God has said. I'm not saying it's always true. I'm not saying it's true for all of us. But I'm just speaking personally. More often than not, I am praying, God, make me healthy, make me happy, give me the stuff I want. Why? Because there's this lingering fear of death. We have in our minds this idea that maybe God is holding out on us, and maybe heaven's not all it's cracked up to be, and maybe this is really our best life now. Which if it is, we are of all men most miserable, right? But sometimes we start to believe that lie, right? What I've got now is better than what I'm going to have later. So I'm going to hang on to this with all I've got. And I'm not saying we do it intentionally. I'm not saying we do it in this act of defiance against God like we did before we trusted in Him. But we absorb the fears and the passions and the lingering effects of sin in our own lives and all that comes together and we end up acting a lot like we fear death like the people around us. So evaluate your prayer life. Evaluate the things that you talk about. Ask yourself, do I fear Jesus or do I fear death? Am I convinced that Jesus is the king and that Jesus helps his people and so because of that I don't have to sin and I don't have to fear death because of the consequences of sin? May God help us to fear Jesus, not death, because as his people, we don't need to anymore. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we look at this passage. Help the truth of it to sink in. Help us not to be swept away by the lingering effects of the old man in our hearts and souls by the tidal wave of unbelief that surrounds us every day. May we fear you because it is not death to die. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, so we no longer need to be enslaved to sin nor fear the consequences that flow from it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.